This podcast is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Here in for Anderson. And that's the latest development on a day that saw another 11 hostages held by Hamas since October 7th. The fourth group so far returned safely to Israel. 69 freed over the last four days. This is new video, some of them arriving tonight by helicopter at a hospital in Tel Aviv where they will be evaluated and treated. And even as they were making their journey back safely today, we learned that the four-day pause in fighting between Israel and Hamas would be extended by another two days and more hostages would be free. Now, in order to extend the pause, Hamas has committed to releasing another 20 women and children over the next two days. We would, of course, hope to see the pause extended further, and that will depend upon Hamas continuing to release hostages. Again, 11 women and children got out today. You see them here, all taken from a single community, Kibbutz near Oz. 11 out of the 77 who were abducted from there on October 7th, that's according to a statement from the Kibbutz. 77 men, women and children, 11 freed today, the youngest just three years old. Now, of the 13 freed yesterday, 10 were from another kibbutz, Kafar Aza, which, like near Oz, was also the site of a massacre by Hamas gunmen. Saturday, another 13 were released, including Noam and Alma Orr, 17 and 13 years old. Their father is still in captivity. Their mother was murdered October 7th. And for so many of the children so far, that must be the worst part of it, learning that they've lost a parent or both parents, or in the case of every single child released today, learning that their fathers are still in captivity. In a moment, a woman who welcomed back six family members then had to tell them one by one that their father, uncle, grandfather, husband was dead. Let's go first to CNN's Oren Lieberman in Tel Aviv. Oren, what's the current status of the 11 hostages freed today? Where are they tonight? John, just a short time ago, uh, Ichilov Medical Center, not far from where we're standing right now, confirmed that all 11 hostages released today, eight children, three women, have been admitted to the hospital. We actually saw the helicopters flying up from the Karim Shalom crossing where they came into Israel, flying right up the beach around where we're standing right now and towards the hospital behind us here. They went through initial medical checks when they first entered Israel for the first time in more than seven weeks. They are now at the hospital where they'll stay for as long as is needed. We got some pictures from the hospital earlier showing the lengths they went to to be ready for these hostages come in where they'll go through more comprehensive medical checks and they'll start to deal with their physical condition and their mental health condition as well, John. So, Warren, what can you tell us about how the, the agreement for the extended two-day pause in fighting came together? There was always the possibility out there on the Israeli side when the government approved this agreement, there was the possibility that for every 10 hostages released, there would be another day in the pause of the fighting. Hamas indicated that as well. But over the course of the past four days, it very much looked like the agreement itself might fall apart. There was a tremendous diplomatic effort to hold it together, especially over the weekend, to get it to this point. There was also internal pressure on the Israeli government, now that hostages have started coming out of Gaza, to keep that process going, to bring all of them home now. So there was the international pressure on both parties, Israel and Hamas, to keep this pause going, especially because it allows humanitarian aid to go in. There was the domestic pressure at play as well. And the possibility was always there. It was the countries as the mediators and the U.S. who helped it get over the line to the point where we now have another 48-hour pause in fighting. 20 more Israeli women and children will be released over the course of the next two days, in addition to 60 Palestinian women and children held in Israeli jails. 
So, Orrin, there's only been one American among the hostages released during this pause in fighting so far. Is the Biden administration saying anything about where efforts stand to bring additional Americans home? So you're absolutely right. Only to this point has four-year-old Avigail Idan been released from Hamas captivity. There are at least two more women that we know of who are American-Israeli who could be released under the terms of the agreement, as well as some men who would have to be part of a different agreement. The White House says they're still working on this hour by hour, but they don't have any update on the condition of the other American hostages being held in Gaza, or, and they don't know when they could be released. It is effectively just waiting for the lists to come out every night or the following day and seeing if there are Americans on them, that is a very difficult position to be in as the U.S. and Israel wait for updates. So, Oren, Israel's defense minister said today that the IDF will fight even harder when the fighting resumes. Is it clear what that means? So Israeli troops remain in Gaza in the thousands, perhaps even in the tens of thousands. They've simply taken up defensive positions. And from the very beginning, Israel's war cabinet and others have said this is still a war. Hamas has said that as well. The moment this pause in fighting is over, the war itself is back on in all of its intensity and all of its horror. Clearly, Hamas and Israel are preparing for those next steps, and Israel's defense minister laying out what that will look like. It is worth noting, John, that at the beginning of this agreement here, Israel put out 300 names that could be released, Palestinian women and children, essentially saying, look, this is the list we could put out if you release enough Israelis. Israel's prime minister's office added 50 women to that list uh, earlier on this evening, and that's an interesting dynamic because of they seem to be saying, look, we have more prisoners we could release here if you keep releasing hostages. The, the tools are there. The question is, can the diplomatic effort get it to that point? Right now, we're only looking at the next 48 hours for a truce and for a pause in the fighting. Getting it past that may be difficult, but clearly the international effort, the mediators are trying to make that happen. We'll see if they're able to here. That is an interesting development tonight. Oren Lieberman in Tel Aviv. Thank you, Oren, so much. Our next guest, Shakud Haran, got six family members back yesterday. Her mother, her sister, a niece, nephew, cousin, and aunt, all taken from Kibbutz Berry. Shakud, thanks so much for joining us. We have a photo of you holding your sister's hand after she was released. Can you describe what it was like to see and hug your family members for the first time yesterday? Um... It was unbelievable at first. You know, we we are waiting for this moment for almost two months. And um, it was just a, a surreal moment. We were so excited and so happy. Um, it wasn't, of course, uh, the something is still missing. You know, my, my brother-in-law is still there. Um, my sister came without her husband and her children without their father. But for now, we were so, so happy to see them and to hug them and to hold them um, and to just be together. Mm. We have video of your family members after the release. How's everyone's health? How are they doing right now? Physically, they're doing fine. You know, there are small issues, um, but they were treated in the hospital. Uh, they're not in the best shape, but physically they are okay. Uh, mentally, you know, it, they've been through a lot. 
it's not something that um, you know that goes away once the scenery changes. Unfortunately, they're happy to be back. They're happy to be with us. Um, but there is a long way to go. What have they told you about their time in captivity, and and how did they cope? Um, there's not much I can share. There's also not much they shared. But uh, mentally, they tried to hold on to the hope that they would be released. It became harder and harder as the days passed by. So I can say that really after meeting them, it has become so much clearer that it is so urgent to get everyone out of there as soon as possible. Um, it's not something that people can hold on to forever. And 52 days is already way too much time to try to hold on in these situations. I understand you are nine months pregnant and that your dream was to have your mother and sister back to be with you in the delivery room. How does it feel now to know that that dream can be a reality? It feels amazing. It feels amazing. I am really blessed that my family is here and my sister and my mother. And I really couldn't imagine the possibility of giving birth without them with me. You know, once they are back, it, it's such an amazing experience, but it's also... Um, you meet the reality that they have been through. Um, and, and so we are, we are both excited and happy and so relieved and also trying to, to, hold, to hold on to each other, to keep each other strong, and to keep the faith and the hope that my brother-in-law will come back. And so now I'm still praying that until I give birth, he's already back here with mm -hmm. us and it will be a full, uh, you know, a full house as much as it can be because we lost our father and our uncle and aunt. But, um, but we're praying for, for his return and for all the hostages' return. You mentioned your father. Your father was murdered on October 7th, and I am so sorry for your loss and your family's loss. It must have been incredibly painful to tell everyone yesterday. They didn't know. I mean, how were they holding up after hearing that? And what do you want people to know about your father? Um, so it's, I don't know if it's possible to describe how hard it was to be the barrier of this kind of news. Um, they've been through so much. And um, and it was really devastating to be, to need to be the person that tells them this. And uh, it broke them. There's no, it broke them, my mother and my sister. And, um, 
but at least we had the chance to mourn together, which was something that was deprived of me until yesterday. My father was an amazing, amazing man. And um, family for him was the most important thing in the world. And one thing my mother said, she said, that the fact that we are here and safe and praying that my brother-in-law will be with us soon is definitely something that he that he would be proud of. And I, I try to think of him and to um, to take power from the from the man he was and not to not to be broken by the fact that we lost him. Your father would be so proud of you and the strength that you've shown and may his memory be a blessing. Um, you've been through so much. We're so sorry for your loss. Um, hug your family tight, please, for us. Shiket Haran, thank you. Thank you. Next, despite so much sadness, more of the joy of families reunited, we have some new video to show you, Justin, of Hadass Calderon today as she gets the news that her son and daughter are coming home. And later in this country, the man now in custody charged with shooting three Palestinian college students in Vermont. And the question, was it, as the victim's family say, a crime fueled by hate? Grief is a human experience, and the care we receive should be too. Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure they get the help they need. There's always a person there guiding your employees using data-driven risk monitoring tools so bottled-up feelings don't turn into further suffering. With Evernorth's wide range of behavioral solutions, care can be personalized, simple, and more accessible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. All There Is with Anderson Cooper is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Grief is a human experience. Shouldn't the care we receive feel human too? That's why Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support anytime, in person or virtually, with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure that they get the help that they need. So no matter what stage of grief your employees may be in, there's always a person ready to listen. Stressful times can lead many to bottle up complex feelings, especially at work. 59% of those suffering say nothing. This can have unexpected and serious mental and physical health implications. And with Evernorth's data-driven risk monitoring tools, they can help spot challenges early and step in to guide individuals to care before they undergo any more suffering. Each person's grief is as unique as they are, which is why Evernorth offers a wide range of personalized behavioral solutions to meet the needs of every member that they serve. Learn more at evernorth.com grief support. At the top of the program, we showed you these names, the names and faces of the hostages who have been released over the past four days. And we spoke with one woman about what getting six loved ones back means to her, even as she mourns the loss of a father murdered on October 7th. 
Right now, though, tempered as it is by sadness, a little more of the joy we have been seeing. And our Gary Tuckman has that. Mayan Zine is about to get her children back. Her daughters, eight-year-old Ella El-Yakim and 15-year-old Daphna El-Yakim, reunited with their mother after being kidnapped by Hamas terrorists. Their father was murdered on October 7th. But their girls are now back home, one of many incredibly emotional reunions in Israel. Abigail Idan, she turned four years old in captivity in the arms of her aunt, uncle, and grandparents. Her mother was shot and killed by the kidnappers. Her father, shielding Abigail, was also killed. Abigail tried to get away and was kidnapped. Now she's home. On the right is Sharon Avigdori, joyfully hugging and looking into the eyes of her son after she was released by her kidnappers. She was held hostage with her 12-year-old daughter, Noam, hugging her father. An incredibly emotional reunion where you can feel the relief and joy with this husband and wife, their daughter and son. Then there are these stories. Nine-year-old Emily Hand and 13-year-old Hila Rotem. <laughs> Two friends who had been together at a sleepover when they were kidnapped. Emily's father had said weeks ago he was informed his daughter was found dead. At the time he told CNN his daughter's death was a blessing because at least Emily was not in Hamas's hands. Now they are back together. Emily's father is Tom Hand. Lost a lot of weight um, from my face and body, uh, but generally doing better than we expected. Hila's reunion was with her uncle. Her mother was kidnapped with her and is still being held. Israel accusing Hamas of reneging on the agreement to release mothers and their children together. Hila's uncle talked to Wolf Blitzer. She had to just say goodbye to her mother. The mother doesn't know what happens with Hila. In the Schneider Children's Hospital in Israel, Yoni Asher is reunited with his wife, Doran, his four-year-old daughter, Raz, and his two-year-old daughter, Aviv. All three of them were kidnapped. He asks, did you miss me? Did you think about dad? His wife says, all the time. And then there's this celebration with honks, applause, music. Mother Daniela Loney and her five-year-old daughter Amelia also released after the Hamas rampage. The song playing in the background, I'm Coming Home. Gary Tuckman, CNN, New York. More now on the help these families are getting as they face the future. Some of it coming from our next guest, who himself, along with his organization, got to work immediately in the wake of October 7th. First, by making contact with families of the hostages, then by creating medical files for each of their loved ones, all while keeping in constant communication with those families over the last seven weeks, and still staying in contact with them now after some of their loved ones have returned home. This has been Dr. Hagai Levine's job as head of the medical team for the Hostages and Missing Families Forum. Dr. Levine, first tell me what you've heard from the returning hostages and their families, those who aren't requiring urgent medical attention. How are they and what do they experience? It depends. Uh, of course, they are extremely happy to be here in Israel with their families, to be treated by multidisciplinary teams, like your show, 360 degrees of all aspects, 
psychological, medical, nutritional, they have many deficiencies. Um, and you know, it's amazing how strong they are and we learn from them of amazing solidarity. We saw over the last seven weeks, amazing solidarity between the families. Now we see among the hostages with offering the scarce food to each other with a hostage saying to Hamas, release her first because she is in worse conditions than I am. And it's going to be a tough recovery to, to get back home. Talk to me about Elma Avram. She was released Saturday and airlifted the Soroka Medical Center. She's in an ICU and in a critical condition. I, I know her family wants you to talk about her condition. What can you say tonight? So I'm with uh, her family over the last seven weeks. Her son, Uri, and uh, his brother, Roy, and sister, Tali, uh, went with me together to the Red Cross. And we had a very, you know, emotional meeting at the Red Cross several weeks ago because they told the Red Cross, listen, if our mother would not get, get the medication she needs, and actually Uri brought the medications to the table, she will be dying. Please do something now. Unfortunately, this is exactly what happened. At the same time, what we now realize she didn't get the medications, rather simple medications, you know, for her thyroid function. She didn't get the medication. So she got deteriorated and deteriorated and deteriorated. When she arrived to Soroka Medical Center, her body temperature was 82 Fahrenheit. Her pulse was slow. Her consciousness was not complete, and her body was full of bruises that may have been from dragging her around, like she's a sack of potato, an object, not a human being. She was full with lies, and, you know, it's just difficult even to, to describe. So that's something that the family wanted to tell, not because it will help Elma, it will not help her, but because they care about the other hostages, the other families. They want the world to listen and understand that if the Hamas will continue to deny medical access for the Red Cross team to visit and take care for the hostages or to release all of them now, people not only die, but will die without dignity would suffer things that no human being should suffer. And her family showed me, you know, her playing with her grand-grandson, seek and hide with him. And, you know, she on the 6th of October, she was well-treated. She was independent, living alone at her home in the kibbutz and, you know, abducted from her home so violently and neglected for such a long time. So we don't have time. We know that some of the hostages were injured, some of them were severely injured, and we are very worried about all of them. 51 days in, what happens if they don't get that medical attention, the hostages who are still in captivity? Well, some of them are clearly dying, and the conditions were poor. We hear now from the other hostages that 
Some of them did not take shower for 50 days and they, did get, they didn't get the food they need. Elma Avram came with full of flies. Again, complete neglect. And I don't know. I don't know. I really hope to get some good news. We are encouraged by the agreement to have two more days, 20 more hostages. But you know, this is a torture that you get slowly and they all need to be home now, safely. Dr. Haggai Levine, we appreciate you being with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've seen the pictures tonight of all the women and children released over the past four days, but there was one man released yesterday by Hamas as well. The story of who he is and why he wasn't part of the broader deal when we continue. From executive producers Park Chanuk and Robert Downey Jr., The Sympathizer is the new HBO original limited series based on the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel of the same name. Join me, Philip Nguyen, a scholar of Vietnamese-American culture, and the cast and crew as we discuss the making of this historic series. Subscribe now to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and stream HBO's The Sympathizer starting April 14th exclusively on Max. Tonight, we are also following a brutal shooting in Vermont that has left three Palestinian college students in an ICU and local and federal prosecutors investigating whether this is a hate crime. A suspect has been arrested and appeared in court today. CNN's Polo Sandoval has the latest details. The Saturday evening shooting of three young Palestinian college students visiting Burlington on their holiday break was one of the most shocking and disturbing events in this city's history. 48-year-old Jason Eaton was arraigned in Burlington this morning. He pleaded not guilty and is being held without bail. Upon knocking on one door, uh, the ATF agents were greeted by a man who uh, stepped out of the hall, out of the door towards them with his palms up at waist height and stated something to the effect of, I've been waiting for you. The ATF agents said, why is that? And the gentleman said in some substance, I would like a lawyer. The three victims, each 20 years old, are Hisham Awartani, a student at Brown University in Rhode Island who now has a bullet lodged in his spine. Kinan Abdelhamid, a student at Haverford College in Pennsylvania who was shot in the glute. And Tashin Alid Ahmad, a student at Trinity College in Connecticut, still has a bullet in his chest. They studied together at Ramallah Friends School, a nonprofit Quaker school in the occupied West Bank. Police say the students were walking down the street Saturday evening while visiting one of their relatives for Thanksgiving. They were uh, speaking in a mixture of English and Arabic, uh, which is, is their want. Two were wearing kafiyas, uh, and they had no uh, knowledge of this individual, had not encountered him before. He stepped off a porch and produced a firearm and began discharging that firearm. Amid rising reports of targeted violence against Jews and Palestinians since the outbreak of the Israel-Hamas war, the shooting immediately prompted calls it should be considered a hate crime. I believe the families uh, fear that this was motivated by hate, that these boys were, these young men were targeted because the, uh, they were Arabs, uh, that they were wearing kafiyas. Um, I think that is our fear. Federal officials investigating whether it was a hate crime in the eyes of the law. Family of the victims say they thought their loved ones would be safe here. Kenan grew up in the West Bank and 
we always thought that that could be more of a risk uh, in terms of his safety, and sending him here would be a you know, uh, the right decision. And we feel somehow betrayed in that decision here, and you know we're just trying to come to terms with everything. And today we learned from Burlington police that they've been able to match the ballistics on the pistol that was recovered from inside of Eaton's apartment, which you see behind me, with the casings that were recovered from the sidewalk itself. So now the prosecutors have that out of the way. The next big question to answer is a possible motive here. With three innocent young men in the hospital, John, no question this was a hateful attack. But was this hate inspired? That is a legal question the prosecutors will have to answer, and it's not an easy one. Paul Zanoval, thank you so much for that. Some context, the Council on American Islamic Relations has documented a more than 200% increase in requests for help in reports of bias since the Hamas October 7th attack. And the Anti-Defamation League has reported a more than 300% increase in anti-Semitic incidents. With me now is Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. Senator Sanders, thanks so much for being with us. When you first heard about this shooting and learned that it happened in Burlington, where you were mayor, where you've lived for decades, what was your reaction? A shock and disbelief. Uh, it really is quite unbelievable. And, and uh, the people of our city are, are very disturbed by this. And I know that everybody in the state of Vermont is wishing these young men the best in their recovery and hope you know, they recover fully and as speedily as possible. So obviously authorities have not yet publicly assigned a motive. How likely do you think it is that this was a hate crime? Well, there is an investigation going on and you don't want to jump the gun, but I think um, you know, when you have three people walking down the street uh, speaking Arabic, uh, you know, I, I think the presumption is that it may well have been a hate crime, uh, but that's what this investigation is about. And I want to applaud uh, local uh, law enforcement and the, eight, and the federal officials who apprehended a suspect as quickly as they did. We appreciate that. What would you say to Vermont residents who might be scared tonight? about political or religious violence in a way that they might not have been before all this? Well, I think it, I, I have to say that sadly, it's, it's not just Vermont. I think the people of Vermont are shaken by this, no question. Uh, but that all over the country, uh, what we are seeing is a rise in Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. In fact, just a few weeks ago, I called for a classified briefing from the FBI on just that issue, which we'll be holding uh, next week. Um, you know, it's this country has gone through so much in terms of racism and bigotry uh, that we don't want to descend once again into attacking each other uh, because of our religion or where we were born. So uh, I hope the cooler heads prevail. So, so what do you do about it? What do leaders in Washington of both sides of the aisle do about this? Well, it's not just both sides of the aisle. It's, it's going into the streets and making it clear that in a democratic society, people can have different opinions on matters of great importance, the war or whatever it may be. Uh, but violence and hatred and hate crimes are not the answer. Uh, in a civilized democratic society, we talk about those issues. We get involved in politics. We fight for our beliefs. Uh, you don't go around shooting people. You recently wrote an op-ed for the New York Times. It was entitled, justice for the Palestinians and security for Israel. In part, you called for a, quote, significant extended humanitarian pause. 
What has your reaction been to the pause that has been in place for four days now in the release of the hostages so far? Well, John, I'm delighted that it is taking place. Uh, I think everybody is gratified to see uh, children and elderly people returning back to their families, and we hope more of that takes place. Uh, but what we should not also forget is that this pause has enabled, uh, has created the situation where there's going to be a huge amount of humanitarian aid coming into Gaza. Uh, and, and we should be clear about this. Gaza today is a total humanitarian disaster. It's not just that 12,000 people have been killed, as horrible as that is. We're talking about one and a half million people displaced, not enough water, not enough food, not enough medical supplies, uh, not enough fuel. It is a disaster. So right now, what we are beginning to see today, as a matter of fact, I think some 200 trucks uh, came in. Uh, tomorrow, I am told, there'll be 250 trucks for humanitarian aid that's long needed, and that is going to save lives. So we certainly hope that that continues. So in multiple recent polls, President Biden has lost support among left-leaning voters under the age of 35. This is a group that was a huge part of your base during your presidential campaigns in 2016 and 2020. Have you heard criticisms from your supporters uh, about the president's positions on this conflict or other things? And what have you been telling them? Well, look, I think everybody, you know, whether you are 18 or whether you're 80, is horrified by what's going on. We were horrified by Hamas's disgusting terrorist attack against Israel and the slaughter the slaughter of 1,300 innocent people. I think we're horrified by Israel's response, which, as I mentioned before, has killed 12,000 people. And what the real worry is here is that some 70% of those people are women and children. So I think there's people are just totally disgusted about what's going on. And one of the things that I have called for is to say, look, uh, we are friends of Israel, but Israel cannot disregard international law. They cannot kill women and children indiscriminately. And if we're going to give them money, and they need money to defend themselves, but if we're going to give them money, then they have got to obey international law. And that means, among other things, uh, an extended humanitarian pause. Uh, it means making sure that we address the crisis in the West Bank, not only in Gaza, where Israeli settlers are killing uh, Palestinians and throwing them off their land, it means that we have to be thinking long term about what the final, uh, how do we solve this problem? And that mm -hmm. is, in my view, a two-state solution, which Netanyahu's right-wing government has not been sympathetic to. But I think they've got to start thinking about that big time if they want American money. Senator Bernie Sanders from Vermont, we appreciate your time tonight. Thank you so much. Thank you, John. Ahead, remembering former First Lady Rosalind Carter and a preview of memorial services with some of the most important U.S. political names of the past quarter century expected to attend, along with some, some surprises on the list. At this moment in Atlanta, former First Lady Rosalind Carter lies in repose at the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library and Museum eight days after she died at the age of 96. This is part of a series of tributes remembering her life and legacy this week. Tomorrow, President and Dr. Biden, former President Clinton, and every living former first lady will attend a memorial service in her honor. That does include Melania Trump. And in a beautiful testament to their 77 years of marriage, former President Carter, currently in hospice care, is scheduled to make the journey to attend as well. 
with me now from Atlanta, Nick Valencia. So, Nick, what stood out in today's events? Well, John, it was a, a gorgeous day. It was very crisp. It was cold, but it was sunny. And it seemed to be a very fitting backdrop for the former first lady because she was a ray of sunshine for everyone that came across her path. She made several stops today. They began in Plains, Georgia, and then stopped by uh, the family motorcade, stopped by a nearby medical center in Americas, where she spent a lot of time as both a patient and a philanthropist. And then earlier this afternoon, her casket arrived here at the Carter Center, a, a center that she helped found. And she used to say that this center, she hoped, would bring people People hope. And it's today where the public is encouraged to come out until 10 o'clock this evening uh, to pay their respects and say their final goodbyes to the former First Lady. John? What do we know about tomorrow's ceremony, Nick? Uh, well, the big headline we found out this morning, it was still uncertain as of this morning whether or not her husband of 77 and a half years would be present at a tribute ceremony tomorrow, a tribute memorial, I should say, for Rosalind Carter tomorrow. He is expected to be in attendance, according to his grandson. He will join a, a wide variety of dignitaries, including uh, the Clintons, the former First Lady Michelle Obama, former First Lady Laura Bush, as well as Melania Trump. And, uh, you know, it's been a steady stream of people here. There continue to be members of the public that show up with their flowers, showing the respects. She died at 96 years old, just a remarkable life, John. But for those that we speak to who know her and who knew her very well, it just seemed like not enough time. And it's never enough time for those of us who've lost loved ones. It doesn't matter the age or number that's uh, you know associated with the person that passes. Rosalind Carter had an amazing life and leaves behind an amazing legacy. Members of the public encouraging to come out to get the respects, uh, to give the respects to the former first lady. Very John. quickly, Nick, in 20 seconds, do we know who's going to be delivering the major speeches tomorrow? Uh, we don't, but we know in attendance there will likely be members from Ebenezer Baptist Church. There will be the Emory president who will also be there. Atlanta was uh, a big, uh, you know, they had a lot of ties here. They were, of course, from Plains, Georgia, but their daughter lived here. In fact, a couple of years ago, I ran into the Carters while they were trick-or-treating with their grandchildren in a, in a nearby neighborhood here in Candler Park. Uh, they stopped to take pictures with everyone who asked. Just uh, wonderful people. That John. is a very Carter story and a very Georgia story. Nick Valencia <laughs> in Atlanta tonight. Thank you so much for being there. We'll be right back. You bet. It's a big week here at CNN. Wednesday morning, we'll see the release of the second season of Anderson's podcast, All There Is. The very personal podcast, as you might remember, focuses on grief, how to talk about it, how to deal with it in conversations with very special guests, including President Biden. Again, the first episode is Wednesday morning, and it'll be available on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also on Wednesday, the premiere of King Charles. The program, hosted by Gail King and Charles Barkley, will take a unique look at the day's news, as only Gail and Charles can do. That airs at 10 p.m. on Wednesday night. All right, that does it for us tonight. The Source with Caitlin Collins starts right now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.